Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Technology and healthcare harmoniously go hand in hand. Without the proper medical devices, many life-saving medical procedures could not be performed. And since the COVID-19 pandemic, a modern merger of these two sectors, telehealth, has flourished. But with telehealth comes cloud computing and cybersecurity, the latter being a focus by tech companies this year, as Russia's war in Ukraine has caused an increase in ransomware attacks. Equity research analyst Max Adelson, who focuses on healthcare and tech sectors, joins the show today. The equity research analysts at Fidelity Canada focus on specific sectors, providing research and analysis to portfolio managers. Today, with host Pamela Ritchie, Max unpacks what's driving the healthcare and tech sectors and shares key trends and opportunities he's focusing on looking ahead. This podcast was recorded on August 4th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So Max, you are a technology, a healthcare analyst, but on a very cloudy and almost thunderstormy day in Toronto, you mentioned to me that you started out as a meteorologist. I'm kind of fascinated about how that started. Why were you interested in that at the beginning? That's a, a great question. How did I go from meteorology into financial markets? Well, uh, it started with my journey through university. I went into a meteorology program at McGill University. And uh, in that program, uh, I ended up meeting a very interesting fellow who listened to me talk about the weather and he said, you know, there are a lot of similarities between the weather and financial markets. You have a million variables coming together and you've got to come up with a forecast, a result of something that happens. And that you might really like this investing um, practice. And so I tried it out, thought it was incredible, had the chance to learn so much about so many different things. And we're gonna talk about a lot of different topics today. We are, there's a, there's a lot of different things. Let's go into sort of within technology, healthcare as well. What, what would you say broadly are making the headlines? There's, there's a lot of sub-industries in there and, and it's almost too broad to put them into those two sector groups. But give us sort of a sense of what are the top line issues right now. That's a great question, Pamela. As the technology and healthcare analyst, there's no shortage of different areas I can explore. Anything from software, hardware, semiconductors, payments, medical devices, pharmaceuticals, biotech. Uh, the list goes on. And so the hardest thing I have to do in my day to day is allocate my time. Yeah. Generally, what I'm looking for is the intersection where we see the greatest incremental rate of change. And that often happens at the confluence of multiple trends. In 2020, the biggest thing impacting financial markets was the global pandemic and that extended into 2021. But now we're here in 2022 and what's making headlines are things like the war in uh, Eastern Europe food and energy shortages. Uh, now we're talking about inflation, potentially recession. And that means that my job has never once been boring. 
I'm sure. And, and, and as you say, the confluence of just so many different factors and pieces of information. Um, are there certain areas, though, that, that perhaps through the last three years and, and, you know, before have actually remained in focus, particularly in sort of technology and software? Absolutely. Maybe the biggest trend, the one that most are familiar with at this point, is the development of cloud computing. And cloud computing has been going on for over a decade now to the point where the largest companies we have in the world, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, they're all major players in cloud. And so at this point, the trend is beginning to be understood. What's harder to see is levels of innovation occurring below that. Uh, what's perhaps less talked about is the development of leading edge semiconductors. A few years ago, uh, we were able to achieve a sub seven nanometer node. That's a major advancement from the previous generation of 10 nanometer nodes, these kind of chips can hold 60% more logic density than their predecessors and have major impact on power saving. This transform devices like the iPhone or Android in your pocket all the way to the data centers that are used uh, in cloud computing themselves. Now, the pandemic was something that occurred right on top of this, and it supercharged some big trends that were occurring like video conferencing, e-commerce, but now as we go into 2022, those things are changing. One that's perhaps remained a constant is cybersecurity. And you talked about it a little bit earlier. As a result of the war and underlying trends, we've seen an increase in the number of ransomware attacks. These are often things that don't necessarily make headlines. Companies don't want to talk about them too much, but they're happening more and more frequently. In fact, I read a really interesting book on this recently. It's called, um, This is How They Tell Me the World. Uh, ends. It's by Nicole Perlroth. Great read. And my favorite quotation out of it was was this. It was, there are only two types of companies out there. Those who've been breached and those who don't know yet that they've been breached. So, so fascinating. <laughs> because, okay, so I'm going to I'm gonna pick up a copy of that because I, I need to take a look at it. I was always wondering. And as you say, you know, a lot of times companies won't say ultimately whether they have or they haven't. Um, <clears throat> Tell me a, a little bit about how some of this, you know, is not seen. I mean, you sort of mentioned there's a lot of stuff going on underneath. Tell me a bit more about that. Like, what are we not seeing, but is very much happening? There's so much that we're not seeing in software. Um, I mean, in cyber in particular, having proper defense is like having a lock on your door at this point. You just can't live without it. And it's getting more and more complex. So I'll give you an, I'll give you an easy example of this. When everyone went home and had to get a laptop connected to their corporate network, suddenly there was this explosion in the number of endpoints. That's known as these uh, devices that can access a corporate network. And everyone had to have antivirus, uh, anti-hacking, anti-spyware type tools installed on those devices. That's something that you know might be an application that runs on your computer that if you ever press Control Alt Delete, you can see it running in the background. But you never really interact with it. And there are so many processes like that occurring all the time. We think generally the growth of cloud computing is going to continue. And so the innovation curve for software will continue. It's just a question of how appreciated is that trend at this point? So in the last four days, we've seen um, we've seen the Speaker of the House in the U.S., Nancy Pelosi, land in Taiwan. You know, the Taiwan Semiconductor is one of the hugest producers. We've also seen the U.S. pass a semiconductor um, piece of legislation, it took a long time, but they eventually did it. 
tell us the role ultimately of, of what's going to happen now. I mean, what, what ultimately does this sort of allow for? So I, I wish I had the crystal ball to be able to predict the future perfectly. It's much like the weather where we have some ideas of what the variables look like. I'd say semiconductors have been talked about like the new oil. It's just something that is so critical. And in any, any device, uh, we're going to be including more and more semis. Like for instance, in an electric vehicle, we're going to be including many more than what existed in internal combustion engines. So the demand for these products is going to continue to go up. And like I said, innovation curve is generally quite steep. So having the latest leading edge chips is a competitive advantage. Uh, and it's so much of a competitive advantage, not just for corporations, but for governments that this is going to be critical in geopolitics going forward. Uh, we've already seen some headlines of that nature, like you mentioned, and there's some companies that are heavily in focus for this. We'll just sort of frame the telehealth discussion or the discussion of health, privacy, um, companies being able to diagnose and, and having an ability to sort of merge this healthcare online and through the cloud, ultimately. There clearly are endless possibilities. What what are the stumbling blocks there? I presume there's sort of a privacy issue that is a concern there, but how else ultimately has this been navigated? Are you, are you seeing real meaningful progress that's sort of ongoing or was it one big leap to that type of healthcare and we're not, we're not gonna keep moving with that as we don't need to anymore? The healthcare in Canada and the United States looks quite different. As you know, we have very different systems. In the US, healthcare is roughly 20% of GDP. And it's a major source of incremental spend. It's grown in excess of GDP pretty well uh, consistently for the last 20 years. And so major companies are looking at ways that they can uh, tap into this market. Amazon made a very high profile acquisition a couple weeks ago in the telehealth space. Uh, we've seen a lot of companies try to innovate in this area in order to bring down the total cost of care. And that includes everything across the space from pharmaceuticals, biotech devices, uh, managed care, it's impacting pretty well everyone. Now, what, what you're referring to, virtual care, the number of patient visits that are not physical exploded during the pandemic, but generally most of that has reversed. For, what, for the most part, what we see is most patients wanna still see their doctor in person. And that means just like retail, the answer is some kind of omni-channel, uh, both a physical and a virtual presence. Interesting. You mentioned pharmaceuticals. Um, let's take a look at what is changing within that landscape. There, there is in Canada, there's a legalization of, of cannabis for certain types of pain management. So it's also in the U.S. Does that change things um, in, in some notable way at this stage or is that still pretty far down the road? That's a great question. Uh, Canada, in Canada, we've had a medical cannabis market for many years and our stock market has a lot of cannabis producers in the healthcare index. That's unique. That's not like what exists in the US where it's primarily biotech, pharmaceuticals, medical devices. Um, so what I talked about earlier, the biggest investments tend to occur uh, where there's an intersection of major changes. And three years ago in Canada, we moved to a legalized adult use cannabis framework. Um, and a lot of change happened around that time. There's also been an evolution of cannabis in the United States. For the most part, we haven't seen big pharma get heavily involved. We know they're watching closely and there's a lot of reasons for this, but the other changes occurring uh, are, are 
innovations in the areas of pain management and dealing with both the mental and physical health consequences coming out of the pandemic. Another major issue the industry is dealing with right now is the opioid epidemic. And sadly, this is at the point now where there are very few families uh, in North America who won't be touched by this. Uh, we've had over 800,000 excess deaths in the United States due to opioid overdose since 1999. 100,000 of those have occurred in the last year. And by 2032, we're likely to see another half a million deaths, which will make uh, opioid overdose a greater source of excess deaths than the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, wow. industry also has a role in solving this and attitudes are changing. So we've seen major settlements for players who have been involved in the opioid supply chain. Uh, some of those are very interesting settlements, actually. They involve donations of drugs that are used to help deal with opioid overdose. However, pharma, as you know, is very focused on IP, intellectual property. They need to be able to patent something in order to see the returns out of it. And cannabis is, cannabis is naturally occurring. Uh, the most active, most common active ingredient out of cannabis is THC. There happen to be 21 individual cannabinoids in each plant, uh, but THC is the most common. This is naturally occurring. It's very hard for them to achieve intellectual property. And as a result, there's a little more interest from the big consumer companies in cannabis than there is from big pharma. You mean like sort of large liquor companies, that type of thing? Absolutely. So the biggest foreign investor uh, in the cannabis space in Canada happens to be company based out of uh, New York State, Constellation Brands, has made a multi-billion dollar investment in a local grower called Canopy, which is now uh, one of the top five licensed producers in Canada. And we've seen another in large over billion dollar investment from Big Tobacco into a local player in Canada. And so what we're watching for is how can they turn this industry from something very nascent into something that looks more like perhaps Big Tobacco, perhaps Big consumer uh, products, and the market in Canada is, is constantly shifting. And it's, and it's local, isn't it? I mean, we, we've had sort of a federal ruling in Canada, but it's still a local store, even municipal, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I've been fascinated to learn about the cannabis industry over the last few years. It's gone through several booms and busts. And it's amazing because for a product with such a stable demand base, the perception of what the market looks like is changed dramatically over time. In Canada, we've moved to this federal legalization framework, but like most healthcare in Canada, it's regulated at the provincial level, which means the distribution and retailing of cannabis looks different across provinces. In Quebec, for instance, cannabis is sold through the SAQ. In Ontario, in contrast, uh, cannabis is distributed through the provincially owned distributor called the Ontario Cannabis Store, but it's retailed through local outlets. At the start of federal permissibility, we only had 40 cannabis stores in Ontario. Producers, consumers were not too happy about that. And since then, permitting has ramped up. We now have nearly 1,500 stores in the province. But like you said, um, the accessibility can vary happens to also be permitted by the municipality and which means that you may have municipalities with no cannabis stores and then some like Toronto where it feels like they're on every corner. So it's interesting. It sounds like so Canada has sort of its own story and, and the United States is it's sort of going state by state as well. So it's, it's somewhat of a, a local story, if you will, uh, depending on which state. 
would you say there's any clear direction on where this goes at this stage or is it is it still it's still very much like interregnum to try to develop itself i i wish i had that answer i, I you know i i love forecasting the weather i love forecasting financial <laughs> markets i don't really love what forecasting what happens in washington uh that is yeah. maybe the most complex thing i've ever come across and i'm i'm not a political expert what i can say and i've observed is that the perception in the industry ebbs and flows with the with the sentiment around the move to U.S. federal legalization. And when the Democrats swept the elections in 2020, there was a lot of speculation that they would quickly move to put this at the top of their legislative agenda. Uh, and so far, it hasn't hasn't made the top five. It may at some point. Uh, what I can say for certain is that the popularity of cannabis amongst Americans continues to rise. We're now at around two thirds of citizens who support the use of adult uh, use cannabis. And we have over half of U.S. states now with a medical program and nearly a dozen states with adult use programs. So the uh, accessibility of cannabis continues to go up in the United States. But critically, because it's still federally illegal, it is a Schedule One drug. The product cannot pass international boundaries or state boundaries. So instead of looking at one major market like we have in Canada, we're looking at 30 or so individual markets with their own unique dynamics. That's fascinating. How how is it in other parts of the world? Like if you look at Europe, for instance, what 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 are the the differences or different speeds at which they're adopting? That's a great question. So there are a handful of countries outside of Canada that have an adult use framework in place, but Canada was one of the early adopters, and it's certainly a test case for big global companies to try to understand what uh, adult use legalized framework looks like. Three years on, we're still learning. In Europe, there are a number of medical programs that are in development. They're fairly small at this point, but the largest country that's talked about moving to adult use cannabis is Germany. And speculation is that anywhere between 2024 and 2027 is when they might move to a legalized framework. But then you got to ask a lot of other questions. How does it get sold? Is it sold through many different retailers? How tightly is it controlled? Can it be purchased in multiple quantities? Because in Canada, at least in Ontario, you cannot produce more than a you, you cannot purchase more than a specified amount of cannabis when you go to the store, and you also can't buy it uh, in a bar. Right, right. It's it's for sort of small quantity personal use, that kind of thing. Um, of course, a couple of questions rolling in here, Max. Um, well, let's let's sort of round out the discussion of the cannabis industry, where it's going, at what stage it's at. This question is: Are there ESG issues in the cannabis industry? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are issues under all three variables, uh, environmental, social, governance. I could start with environmental. Industry is always looking for the most efficient path to market. And uh, as a result of significant capital raising and uncertainty over the size of the market in Canada, a lot of dollars that were earmarked for the U.S. actually went into building capacity for cannabis growing in Canada. That's starting to reverse. Since 2020, we've seen a 7 million square foot reduction of, um, of greenhouse growing capacity, 3 million square foot reduction of indoor grow, nearly 450,000 acre reduction in outdoor grow. And what's happening is industry is rationalizing back to the most efficient producers and who can produce the product at the lowest possible cost, which should be the lowest environmental impact as well. Um, I could also speak to the governance uh, issues as well. A lot of these companies 
came from various backgrounds. The, the uh, entrepreneurs who started them came from different industries. There's nobody who's had a career in cannabis because it's so new. And as a result, the governance frameworks were fairly undeveloped. We're now in the process of that changing. And now that there's more active involvement from major industry players, like we mentioned earlier, the governance frameworks are starting to look more like those companies over time. That's fascinating to watching some of that develop. Um, so this is kind of going back to the original discussion, looking at technology, some of where the focus is ultimately. So is, this is asking about where tech is in terms of the markets. Is tech at the bottom? Is it time to get back in? Your investing advice is being requested here. I'll see how you answer that. Yeah, the beauty of tech is that it serves so many different industries. So it's not like talking about oil, where chances are the fortunes of every oil producer in the world fall and rise together. Uh, whereas in tech, you can have companies selling into the oil industry who in 2020 couldn't make a single sale because everyone was trying to cut costs there. Or you could have tech companies selling to startups. And in 2020, when there were so many new startups, that was like shooting fish in a barrel. And so the end market exposure of the technology companies has to be scrutinized really closely. Looking at who their customers are is really important at this point because the subsector trends are, are dramatically different. And further that question, when you think about technology, often think about the big companies like Amazon, Microsoft, but perhaps the lesser known ones are the semiconductor companies that I spoke about. There are major hardware companies that are involved in tech. And then the payments players too are also considered tech companies like Visa, MasterCard, et cetera. So, I mean, e-commerce is obviously something we've been talking about and all been engaging in for, for years at this stage, especially through the pandemic, obviously. Any changes to that? Any switches, any, you know, again, it's just as omnichannel as it needs to be. Have we have we made a a full time sort of shift to that? What how, how do you see growth there going forward? Uh, e commerce is fascinating. I mean, this is something that's been in development for over twenty years now, but at various points in time, it becomes more prominent, less prominent. Uh, I start with the framework of looking at where we are right now, and the most advanced country in the world in terms of e commerce is actually China. Nearly 40% of retail sales huh. in China are e-commerce, e-commerce enabled. Uh, the United States is way, way, way behind, below 20%. And there was a lot of growth in that category in 2020 when everyone was forced to go home. Uh, but it's generally come back in in the last 12 months. It's rebalanced a little bit. Now, it's much higher than where it started. E-commerce continues to grow, uh, but it's it hasn't accelerated like it may have been anticipated a year or so ago. Now from here, there's gonna be a lot of variables that drive it. E-commerce has to stand on its own two feet, be economic, which means people need to have devices that are connected to the internet. Okay, check mark there. Everyone now pretty well has a data plan. That means they can buy stuff off their phone. They can engage more with the internet than they had before with their desktop computer. Um, we also need advancements in logistics. And this is a big topic right now. For a long time, we had supply chain crunch. Uh, it was very hard to get goods in, in imported into the country or get them around the country. That was a big bottleneck to e-commerce adoption as well. The more investment there is in this call, this last mile delivery and setting up dedicated e-commerce operations, the more the uh, business will be economic and likely there will be uh, growth from that. But that's a that's a big question. And you got to follow the big logistics players to get a good handle on that. 
it's still expensive, that final mile, for sure. Um, so this is a question, I don't know if this is an area you particularly follow. So how has the online betting industry fared since becoming legal in many states and how investable is the space at this stage? Yeah, so online gaming, I've, I've done some work on that. It's a really interesting space, uh, both Europe and United States, now Canada, we have an online betting framework. What we've seen is a lot of volume has tended to congregate in several players. So a few e-companies have dominated big parts of this market. Uh, and so from a market structure perspective, that makes them really interesting because they happen to have these network effects. Um, network effects are very virtuous from a from an investor perspective, uh, but the category itself has to be looked at under a consumer discretionary type of framework. Uh, people, there are people who uh, consider gambling as part of their uh, necessity for for life. It's a form of entertainment, uh, but in large part, it is considered a discretionary item. Uh, so the fortunes of the consumer will be very tied to the fortunes of online gaming gambling. When will the cannabis industry become profitable? That's a great question. There are a few players who have found ways to... Some must be, yes. There are some players who have found ways to generate profits here. There are many players who haven't yet found a pathway to doing it. It's going to be interesting to see how the market uh, develops over time. We have over 150 growers in Canada. That's probably too many. Uh, there's going to be I think a lot of predictions around what it looks like could be something like the beer industry, where there are a few players that are responsible for the majority of volumes, and then you have this big tail of craft brewers. And craft brewers don't compete on price, they compete on the quality and uniqueness of the product. So we just need to see a little bit more development of the market. But as I said earlier, there is capacity coming out at this point, which means eventually the supply and demand is going to balance at an acceptable level of profit. We just can't answer exactly when that's going to happen. So fascinating. So, so ultimately, if you go back to sort of drug companies competing, I mean, you mentioned that that patenting obviously is part of how drug development happens. I mean, that that's a that's a massive um, sort of entree into being able to develop a drug. Are are there ways of patenting certain types of of cannabis of of offerings that will be you know? pain relief and that kind of thing? Like, is there some way they can patent some things? That's a really interesting question because like I said, there's 21 individual cannabinoids. Some of them are rare. Some of them can uh, incite hunger or suppress it. They can create the feeling of sleepiness. These are potentially desirable traits. The pathway to getting there, it's possible that some of that could be made into a patent. It may end up being more like a trade secret uh, even last week, I was tracking a really high-profile IP case in the United States where a uh, very, very significant therapeutic had its intellectual property ruled to be um, not exclusive. Um, judge made a decision that invalidated something called a polymorph patent. This is one way of patenting a drug in the United States. Polymorphs are very rare to, uh, to see this kind of ruling come back as an invalidation. That probably means that big pharma is going to have to be more careful about what they invest in to make sure that what they're doing is novel and considered innovative or not considered obvious. And there is this issue of anybody who's working with the cannabis plant, can they arrive at some of these 
individual cannabinoids in a way that can be considered obvious or someone who is quote skilled in the art could achieve and if so it may be difficult to achieve really strong exclusivity over those molecules and that's why like i said we see more interest from the consumer industry in cannabis than necessarily big pharma it's fascinating. It's so interesting to get your thoughts, well, namely on the weather, no, but seriously on technology <laughs> and the intersection of technology with um, with the healthcare industry writ large. Fascinating to catch up with you, Max. All the best. Thanks for joining us here in August. The pleasure. Thanks a lot, everyone. And, and thanks for Pamela. Thanks to Pamela for hosting. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.